You're listening to the Ranch Stewards Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the stewardship and conservation of grasslands, diverse ecological landscapes, and the salt of the earth individuals who dedicate their lives to this endeavor. And now here's your host, Haley Ship. Things you're going to learn on this podcast here today. Number one, a beta fish is also known as a Siamese biting fish. And then number two, this is probably a refresher on a concept that you remember from junior high. And that is the description of a Venn diagram. So that's that illustration that uses circles to show the relationships among things. If your circles overlap, they have a commonality. Well, if they do not, they do not share those traits. So today's topic is hunting and private land. I'm going to challenge us here. Are we in the world of biting fish? Or is it more of a Venn diagram? In on the discussion, Martin Townsend. Martin works as the conservation coordinator with the Rancher Stewardship Alliance. Our rancher insight for the episode is Leslie Robinson. She is a Phillips County, Montana rancher. And as has become the tradition for all three episodes of this podcast, I'm going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Yeah. So um, as conservation coordinator here at RSA, I work across um, different agency and wildlife partnerships that work with ranchers to accomplish ranch and wildlife goals together. So oftentimes that involves sportsmen group and hunters as interested individuals as part of the conservation work happening in this area. So um, my job uh, is sponsored by Pheasants Forever. So I'm a Pheasants Forever employee that works for RSA. So I have a direct tie-in with a sportsman group there. So we come across pretty, pretty often and frequent efforts to greater involve hunters in local conservation efforts. So I think today's conversation for me is uh, just kind of a discussion of how hunters, land conservation, ranchers, and all of those three topics can all benefit each other um, and how to make each of those things better itself as well. Leslie, you all have a ranch, of course, in Phillips County. I know you've had block management for years. We'll kind of get into the ins and outs of of what that program actually is in case some of the the folks listening don't know. But uh, you also sit atop the FWP Commission, so the the group that kind of sets some of the yearly uh, goals for what's going to happen in the state as far as hunting. So I guess I, I'm just giving your background for you. I'll let you speak for yourself, Leslie. All right. Yeah. Leslie Robinson. Uh, we ranch in southwest Phillips County near Zortman. Family ranch. Family's been on here since uh, 1958. So we have uh, a lot of connections to hunters that have been coming here for generations. And we've been in block management for 23 years. I checked on that today since 2000. So it's been consecutively since uh, 2000. And I also am the first vice president of the Montana Stock Growers Association. So I get the chance to uh, be around lots of different groups and uh, listen to different people. But I also get to uh, talk to the people on the ground, mainly hunters that uh, we see. So I look forward to the conversation today. Leslie, we have folks that I know are going to be interested in this podcast, both in Montana and out of Montana. I don't know how expansive this block management program is, if it's something people have adopted in other states. Kind of dumb that program down for us. Give us the overview of what goes on in block management. So we have about um, 10,000 acres of our ranch in, in block management, and every block management is run differently. But for us, they just have to sign in in a box, and that gives them permission to hunt. But it also tells their sheets in the blocks, and it also tells them if it's a walk-in only or where the parking areas are. 
if there are any specific rules that go along with it. So it's, it's pretty self-explanatory and, um, it's been successful. We still have, um, today, I actually, when we were moving cattle, ran into a hunter that was in the wrong spot. So, uh, we still have, uh, problems, I guess that people aren't quite following the instructions, but, um, overall it's, it's a very good program. And Martin, I noticed you had some reaction to that as far as, you know, if people know about block management in other states, is this something that's more unique to Montana or do people see this in the Midwest as well? Yeah. So by name, it's unique. Every state has different sort of state game agency run access programs. Um, So in Montana, we have block management. Uh, We also have something called open fields, which is upland bird hunting specific for CRP fields that landowners can enroll in. Um, And then there's other FWP programs that support access, like their migratory bird program. And then there's also some non-FWP access programs too, but it's just confusing enough. We'll keep it at three. It all have a slightly different sign. <laughs> Leslie, your your story about just moving cows and finding somebody that was in the wrong spot. Uh, you know, I think that this is something that happens consistently, be it a conscious decision on somebody that's utilizing land or an unconscious decision being that sometimes it's just really hard to tell exactly where you are if you don't have, you know, I've got the, of course, the Onyx app on my phone and and typically have a pretty good idea of where I'm at physically. Sometimes you don't have the best cell phone service to bring up technology like that. And in Montana, we definitely have this checkerboard of public and private land where it sometimes can be pretty easy to get confused. So I guess, could you speak to that maybe a bit on how just the land layout of Montana can make things sometimes a little bit trickier to navigate? Sure. And we definitely are, especially in this area, very checkerboarded. When I stopped them today, I just uh, pulled up next to him and said, I think you're lost. <laughs> I said, this is this area is not in block management. And, and we actually had uh, three different pasture surrounding that pasture that we're in block management. So I just pointed them in the right direction, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's always, uh, a respect thing. If the, if the hunters are respectful to the landowners and vice versa, it just makes for a, a lot better relationship. And, um, it's not the areas that we don't have in block management doesn't necessarily that mean that we don't allow hunting, but it's, uh, through permission and, it's a lot better to ask permission than to trespass and have to be uh, told that you need to go to a different area. Leslie, as you talk about saying you're lost, I immediately pictured like Leslie as John Dutton. And <laughs> <laughs> I think you're lost and you, you know, pull up on somebody that's somewhere that they're not supposed to be. But I think um, not to bring the Yellowstone storyline too much into what we're doing, but When we look at Montana as a state, and if people have experienced that Yellowstone storyline, I think it does paint this huge, huge, um, you know, gap between the landowner and the outside person that is there sometimes in perception more than it is in reality. So I think what you're saying about, you know, landowners need to be respected as well as mutually give some respect is is key in that. Martin, you've been hunting your uh, whole entire life. As Leslie talks about some of that respect and uh, really honing in on the relationships between landowners and hunters, do you have any tips for people about how to best do this? Some um, good practices, I guess, and, and then make sure that we have that respect out there? I guess for a little more background on that, I grew up uh, at the other end of Montana, uh, Southwest Montana, where 
land ownership changes, development, um, different things like that kind of started to limit access. But uh, I, then my mom's family is from here in Phillips County. So we were able to come here um, and hunt on her uh, family ranch. So uh, we had the chance basically to see extremely limited access and then also kind of unlimited access. So I think in my mind on private access, um, Leslie touched on it, respect, being polite, make sure you have the permission, make sure you're in the right spot, make sure you follow the rules of wherever you're allowed to go to the T. And then, especially when we get into this side of the state, the public-private checkerboard is huge. Um, and that's honestly something I run into every year here is where are you? Are you lost or are you over the line on purpose? You'll be in a pasture that's you know a few thousand acres um, and maybe 10% of it's private. Um, and it's not marked. It's not easy to tell. It's it's It blends in with the rest. So knowing where you are is a huge component. And then also on especially the public land access, following the rules of that public land area uh, between state DNRC land, state wildlife management areas, federal waterfowl protection areas, federal refuges. There's There's different rules for different types of public land. So being aware of those is huge. And most of the rules on those also come down to knowing where you are. Public land, private land, this is something that as a non-hunter myself, I was never that aware of how much they were intermingled. You know, I think in ideology, we we kind of, I guess, would expect that, oh, this BLM pasture is going to have a, a fence around the BLM pasture, and then this deeded stuff is going to have a fence around it. And then you start looking at the maps and you realize, nope, there's this chunk of, of state land or a chunk of federal land that's right in the middle of this pasture. So, Leslie, looking at that from a state issue, again, you're you're a rancher, you've been involved in block management, you serve on the FWP commission. How do you handle that sort of lack of lineation between the two as you approach hunting access in the state? The most important thing to remember is you have to have legal access. So um, you need to have permission to cross private land if if the public land is within the boundaries of the private land or, or just the access road goes through private land, unless it's a an actual county road or and that's real tricky too because I spent 12 years as a county commissioner and a lot of people assume that something's a county road because it's been used for years. It's uh, pretty important to just make sure you know where you're at and what your legal access is. And, and from what I understand, Onyx is not exactly completely accurate as far as the legal access roads too. So it, it sometimes it does make it tough for people, but but the number one thing is just make sure that you have legal access. This legal access thing so huge, and I'll throw it out there that I myself am a very part-time rancher working with my father. And I have a house on the road that's next to the private land. And so I end up being somebody that people stop by and ask for access from. Now, this is a podcast. I didn't throw my GPS location out there. So I'm going to go ahead and say I do live alone and I have an infant. And quite frankly, I don't like it when a pickup load of people come into my yard. You don't know them. They're unannounced. They're armed. They're here to hunt, right? And they're knocking at my door wanting me to give them access. It's uncomfortable and it's intimidating. What is a way that we can all look at a situation like this a little bit differently than just being uncomfortable or just being guarded? Is there a way that we can get the education out to people that might be knocking on doors and saying, maybe here's a better way to do it? Just kind of throwing out this situation as as a talking point that maybe we can kind of establish something to handle this a little bit better. Martin, I'll, I'll start with you. 
I think for me, planning ahead would be the big thing. I mean, if you're coming to an area and you're new to the area, it, it's probably in your interest to spend time just getting to know the area itself and the options for access and the landowners in the area, if that's an option that presents itself. Um, yeah, reacting day of trying to find access or right after you've seen something is probably a losing battle um, as pressure mounts around the world. So, um, and I know that's hard for hunters that come from a long distance, they only have a few days here. They're really trying to like maximize that opportunity while they're here. But um, I think patience and realizing the scope and scale of the area, like there's always somewhere else to try if, if access doesn't work out somewhere else. I do want to say that last year I had gotten a letter in the mail. I think it was from somebody that was maybe in New Hampshire. It was way far away. And they had must have found our data through, um, you know, some sort of a, a county map or the Montana cadastral and gotten our mailing address and actually mailed us a letter six months in advance and said, hey, we're coming to the area. We saw that you have some deeded property. Would you mind if you hunt on it, if we hunt on it? And I thought that was awesome. And then it got put into a pile of mail that I would address at some point, And I never got back to the individuals. So uh, good for them. Not so good for my paperwork system, but they, they definitely tried to plan ahead. Uh, Leslie, anything that you've got to, to add to that? I would just add to that. Um, even when they call, when it gets to be fall time, we are barely in the house. We're leaving uh, daylight, not getting home till dark. And it's pretty tough to return a call um, if they're asking. So, so sometimes it is, it is hard to uh, get a hold of it. But if you planned ahead, like Martin said, and you went, uh, you know, a couple months ahead of time or whatever, gave us a little bit more time to respond and I've been in the state your shoes also, Haley, before. And it is it is a little bit nerve-wracking when you know that you're the only pl- person on the place and you're just there. And I don't know, it's just, uh, I don't know how to fix that except for by planning ahead because it's sometimes not a good situation. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's important for people, especially new to this area, to realize just how big the area is and then how much access there actually already is of, Again, there is always another option. And then two, I mean, to catch a rancher is kind of a miracle in itself between cell service. Like you said, where are you in the world? I mean, like I saw Jim this archery season at the bottom of the breaks, like 35 miles from your house. And I know he didn't have service. So, um, yeah, just being able to contact a landowner, I don't think is as easy as people expect it to be. As we look at good hunter relationships. Leslie, as we were setting up this interview, I know that you were were going to dinner with some hunters. You had a plan that evening. And I think with within RSA, Martin and I, we constantly use the word relationships, relationships, because that is what is key in the work that we do as a nonprofit. And that's also key in what we are expecting these uh, hunters to be able to do when it comes to private land access. So give us some ideas of what people can do to foster that relationship, to create a good relationship with the rancher, Leslie? Like the guy that we were having dinner with the other night, he, I don't even know how many years he's been coming to the ranch. He actually came to our daughter's wedding. And we have set, we had a, a few hunters that came to our daughter's wedding that just started out as hunters. And just the respect thing, if you're respectful and, and follow the rules and I don't know, we just just visit with the ranchers, um, you know, if they're busy or whatever, just, just kind of play it by ear and see if they have time to visit. And, and, uh, it just has, has built 
through the years. And one of them, uh, one of the uh, hunters that came this year started coming when he was a kid with his dad. And now he brought his son and his grandson with him this year. So the four generations have come from that family to hunt on this ranch. And so it's, it's fairly common. And I just think that, uh, building relationships is just like you said, so important in everything that I do. I feel that no matter if you're dealing with, um, agencies on the state or the federal level, you just need to, uh, get to know them and respect them and, and then just try to build a relationship. Jerky always wins. I freaking love jerky. And uh, we had one hunter that every year would, I I swear one whole deer must've gone to jerky for what he would give to me. And it was so spicy. And I was the only one in my family who could eat it. And he would just bring it to me. And still to this day, I've gotten jerky from him in the last couple of years. And he doesn't even hunt our property anymore, but he still remembers I like his jerky. Camp invites are always a a great way. I was visiting the ranch for work one day. And uh, the guy told me, I got to go. I got to go through the elk camps and see who's cooking the best steak this year. Uh, different camp uh, closer to my uncle's ranch. They uh, invite him over almost every year. And I was out there bird hunting one year and went with. And yeah, it was a great time. They uh, they went a little extreme. They had their portable dish network set up outside. They had the World Series on in the wall tent. Had a whole pig roaster. They, uh, they went a little overboard. But uh, I uh, I had a co-worker of a co-worker here last week out of the, the Bozeman area closer to where I grew up and we were talking about my dad's long-standing elk camp and where it is and he goes yeah I've, I've hunted up there I was like well you've probably seen my dad's camp he goes is that the, the wall tent and the three horses and the, the maroon pickup and I go yeah and he goes and the, and the big guy with the mustache that always has potatoes made it's like that, that's my dad <laughs> yeah. so he'd even been by that camp so camp invites can be a great way to meet people in the area um and as a, a hunter, if a landowner stops by, I mean, yeah, make it make it a point to be nice. I, I guess I could add too that uh, we have hunters when we're trying to get our our cattle gathered. It's big country, and um, Jim's a pilot, which helps. But there's hunters that will call us and tell us, "Well, you have cattle at this reservoir or whatever," which is super helpful. So just little things like that. It doesn't have to be big things, but. We do get a Montana Valley ham from some of the hunters and that <laughs> we always look forward to that one for sure. Yeah. I think that's a good point too. On if you see something that looks out of place ranch wise, um, letting the ranch know is always a great idea. Sad to say, but I think I've spotted like three dead cows so far this fall that I don't think people had seen otherwise. So letting people know of like, Hey, if you're missing one, uh, I know where it is. <laughs> An extra set of eyes on things. I've also heard people say help with ranch work. And sometimes that makes me a little bit squeamish because these people probably aren't cattle people. Are you going to get yourself in a liability situation if you've got a bunch of folks that that don't know out there? But I would think anybody can probably figure out how to help with fencing with a little bit of input or um, some of those things as well. So um, any other ideas, guys, of of what ranchers want? Oh, in the past, we've had... Um, uh, hunters that would like move our vehicles for us if we're moving cattle or something like that. And we, we need to move them to a different spot. I mean, they're, like I said, it just, just think outside the box and offer. And if the rancher doesn't um, need the help or want the help, then, then that's fine too. But just, just think a little things like that, which are a big help. I also want to speak to the idea of hunter ethics and 
definitely these landowner relationships fall into hunter ethics and something that I know groups like what we have in Glasgow with the Highline Sportsmen, it's it's really a pillar that we've seen a lot of those outdoors groups start to elevate in that we have to maintain and foster and really celebrate these relationships as part of what we do as an overall hunter ethos. Martin, is that just something that I'm starting to see more of, or is it starting to maybe take a turn in the in the group of hunters as a whole? I I think it's getting more common, more publicized, and louder of ethics first, trophy second. I, I think that's been a good movement in the hunting community in the last few years is really focusing on maybe like the right way to hunt more so than the accomplishment of what did you end up getting. Um, so I think that overall mentality has really helped. I think there's been some good efforts by different groups um, that are active in the hunting community to really, really push that publicly. Um, and I think even things like hunting shows have gotten better about leaning into that side of hunting versus just the trophy presentation. Uh, so I think that's been good to see. And I think that's made a difference with how people expect hunting to go, especially when they're either new to hunting or new to an area. I think like just honestly more honesty and like you might not get something every time more honesty and it's okay to not push the rules in the effort of ending up with a trophy and being more cognizant of the failure in hunting, I think has been a good thing for the hunting community to get behind. Leslie, I'm curious, are you a hunter at all? I never asked you that. You provide access, but do you hunt as well? There is an elk behind you. So I'm thinking. Yeah, that, <laughs> well, that was, that. that's my husband's elk. I was with him when he got it back in 2016, but this year's the first year that I, uh, big, I actually had an elk take a couple years ago and we are so busy that I never really got to get out much, but this year I got an antelope and, uh, it was my first antelope tag and, uh, opening day, got my antelope and so it was, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I just never took the time or had the time, I guess before. And so now I'm, I've really got an interest in it and Jim, Jim's been doing it for years. And so now his, his thing is to help, help me, I guess. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a lot of fun. I've always been amazed in this job, the different views ranchers have on hunting. And I mean, I guess I assumed every rancher enjoyed hunting because of the ones I grew up around. Like, I mean, you know, my uncle, he would drop ranch work at the drop of a hat to go hunting. So uh, it's, it's been fun to see different ranches views on hunting of love it, hate it, don't care, indifferent. So it's neat to hear that you're finding ways into it. Well, regardless of whether or not we enjoy hunting, I think both the the hunter and the rancher can appreciate that the ranch does provide a habitat and uh, begrudgingly so. Sometimes it can provide a habitat for the wildlife that's around. I've got haystacks just out my kitchen window and that's, you know, of course, my prime wildlife viewing on the whole ranch. Martin, what we do with Rancher Stewardship Alliance deals a lot with different conservation groups that want to see these wildlife populations in healthy number. And that's key to have healthy ranches. You can have a healthy ranch and it really... Uh, gets shown off, if you will, by the the wildlife habitat that's there inhabiting it. So kind of talk about that um, that relationship with healthy soils, healthy grass, healthy wildlife, and ranching creating that habitat. Yeah. So honestly, like why we have a conservation program and why it exists is because of all of the outside focus on this area from um, especially wildlife conservation groups. Uh, we're in a, a great big giant, mostly intact grassland that supports all sorts of 
neat, nearly endangered or threatened uh, grassland wildlife that are super specific to this area. They're super specific to the habitats that are here. And why this area is that special is because it's almost all functional ranches. So, I mean, we're 99% ranch land as we go across um, our geography. And that ranch land, without meaning to, supports some of the most intact, absolutely necessary for species survival habitat in the world. And conservation groups are super aware of that. And I think we're doing a better job of actually ranchers in our area becoming aware of that. I don't know how many ranchers know what a Sprague's pipit is, but I think more and more of them are hearing about it as we work with these conservation groups and bring them in front of landowners that are supporting these, these special and unique wildlife species in the area. And then the, the size and scope of the area we're in supports um, giant migrations and large big game herds. And it, it, it matters at scale. That like a, a landscape and worldwide scale to wildlife populations. So for conservation groups to interact with that and support that, they have to work with ranchers. So that's what our conservation program does is try to funnel support from the wildlife and conservation communities to ranchers so that those ranchers can stay operational and that those ranch lands can basically stay the way they are, um, which is a, a functional habitat that supports great wildlife populations. Leslie, likewise, you sit within the FWP commission and are in a lead role within that commission. Could you explain a bit about having this landowner rancher perspective in this position that is very wildlife oriented and kind of how that parallels well with one another? A lot of times people don't uh, understand, I guess, that ranchers are very, a lot. well, I can't say every rancher is, but most ranchers are wildlife friendly. I mean, if you're getting overrun by the wildlife, that's a whole different uh, scenario. But every time we go out, it's like this morning when we went to go ride, there's a, a bunch of deer, a bunch of antelope. I mean, we just never know. And Jim, a lot of ranchers are uh, very aware of the different kinds of bird species and pay attention. And a lot of times when somebody comes out to do uh, a study or a survey, they have a tough time finding birds. But if you ask the rancher, that's another thing too, is ask the ranchers because a lot of times they can just point you right in the right direction of where they're at. But that has helped me, I guess, on the commission just to have a, a perspective from on the ground. And I, I sometimes when I would say, oh, we had a, you know, a bunch of deer in our pasture or whatever, and, and it would get taken uh, as I was not wanting the deer in our pasture, you know, because sometimes they hear that and that's not the case, but I, I understand that there are ranchers that are, there's way too many wildlife, you know, in their areas or whatever. And so there are, there are problems, but, and not only the intact, uh, grasslands, but like our pivots bring in a lot of wildlife to all kinds of different species. And I just wanted to mention too, that the last few years with the drought, the water tanks that are maintained and a lot of times funded by the ranchers were the only source of water for anything, including wildlife. So uh, we're very intertwined and, uh, and ranchers as a whole, I think, care about wildlife and, and want to uh, help take care of them also. Yeah. I think that was uh a huge thing in the drought in different areas of uh, stock water being basically the only water left for wildlife. We had a guy um, in the extreme north end of Phillips County 
well, we were up there for a, a documentary project and had a, it was actually an antelope and fencing project. And we were taking just extra video of a woven wire fence next to a stock tank and an antelope came down within like 15 yards of us to drink out of that stock tank. I was like, wow, I didn't think antelope would be that brazen. And that rancher goes, well, it's the only water for like seven miles. And legitimately, that was the only surface water for seven miles in any direction. So he had hundreds of antelope watering out of that tank all last summer. Leslie, I don't know your educational background, but I don't believe that you've got any like doctorate in biology or soil health or anything like that. If you do, you're hiding it from us. <laughs> but um, Martin actually has his degree and is able to do ag education. So I'm going to turn this one over to you, Martin, and um, have you explain it. But I've always heard that you know, your cattle will graze and then you'll have wildlife come back through after the cattle because they like, I believe it's a higher protein that's to that grass or, or something in the like. And so um, really emphasizing that these cattle systems and good grazing is complementary to good wildlife and where you see good done in one area, you'll also see it in the next. So give me the teacher's version and the actual facts to what I just came up with. Yeah. I'm going to let Leslie expand on this more because I'm sure they see it in real life every day, but uh, it's, yeah, regrowth is higher. Grass regrowth is higher in nutrients, higher in protein, higher in feed value. Agricultural systems are completely designed for production, um, grass production being the start of that. And when wildlife need grass to live too, that, that benefits wildlife. So productive ranches basically are producing an excess of wildlife habitat. So that's that's the, the wordy version of it, but I'm going to let Leslie talk about where they see a lot of wildlife. It's pretty obvious that um, st a stagnant grass, the old grass, it's that's not where they're going to go. They're going to go where it has been grazed and where where the healthier um, grass is. That's that's where the wildlife follows. So it and I would think any cattle, I'm sure the same thing, they're going to choose that over um, the old stagnant grass. And and you can get uh, the grass too thick also. And so it is important to. Uh, kind of just balance and, uh, you know, try to graze and, and keep everything healthy. I'm glad you said it in exactly those words, because then the other half of my wordy explanation is when we do conservation projects, we're working with the Fish and Wildlife Service and they do uh, grassland bird abundance models for like four to six, like little species of grassland birds, sprags, pipits, lark buntings. And we have a program that specifically looks at increasing the grazeability of CRP that's been left stagnant for years. And so far in five years now of projects, every single time we increase grazing, it increases an in abundance in those declining grassland birds. So it's an exact one-to-one -one of cycling grass is better for wildlife than stagnant underused grass, which has been fun to see because I think there's a, a huge misconception in the wildlife community of land needs to be left alone to be valuable for wildlife. So yeah, that's a great, just simplified, you know, if you, if your dream is to buy a ranch to create a wildlife habitat and you take everything off of it and think that that wildlife habitat is just going to be created, you're not doing yourself nor the land a service nor the wildlife. Right. As we talk about ranchers being good stewards of the land in so much of what we do, and Leslie, you mentioned that we often have these water tanks, rancher-funded water tanks. RSA, we'll give our little plug, can help you for funding for some of those <laughs> points. But, um, you know, we can, it's these improvements that we're putting in that have now allowed for us to not only be stewards of the land, but 
also stewards of the wildlife where mother nature wasn't being that favorable to them, but we're able to put in and implement some of these different strategies that can now help them. Um, Martin, one of the things that I'm thinking of when we we talk about being stewards of the land and the wildlife and strategies that we incorporate is that um, wildlife-friendly fencing has now grown in popularity. And this is kind of a new concept to me. I kind of thought it was wishy-washy drinking the Kool-Aid when I first started with RSA because a fence is to keep livestock in, right? But there is some functionality that's lost if a fence goes too low to the ground in migration patterns. Specifically, we look at pronghorn a lot. So I guess, Martin, give us our sales pitch. Why does a rancher need to worry about wildlife-friendly fencing? For the most part, ranchers are doing it anyways. Um, actually, Leslie, your husband's one of my favorite stories on this of trying to explain what a wildlife-friendly fence was. And then Jim just explained to me how the fences around there were built so that the bottom was high enough that the antelope didn't shred them every year and the tops were low enough that the elk didn't knock them all down and <laughs> save maintenance. And why would anybody not do that? I was like, well, it's been retitled wildlife-friendly fencing. <laughs> and that Basically, the whole point of that is, again, it's got to keep cows where cows are supposed to be. Um, but if it can be built in a way that's easier for antelope to, antelope and deer to get under and elk to get over, um, if it's in a low spot or an area of visibility for like a, a top wire, I know that's getting popular for elk. If a top wire can be marked so it's more visible so animals can jump it better, um, why not do that? It saves maintenance for the ranch. It lowers the cost. I mean, fencing is one of the top three costs a ranch deals with. So anytime we can find ways to make that to where it isn't hampered by wildlife and then doesn't affect how it works for cattle management. I think that's a, that's a great outcome for both sides. Uh, we just picked some funny words to title it wildlife friendly fencing, which I think has a little bit of a, a name to overcome in the ranching world. We just learned about this at a conference I was at last week and it's called code switching, how you change your language to talk to different groups of people and you're still saying the same words or the same messaging, but you're using different words to describe that messaging. And yeah, wildlife friendly fencing for you is uh, the same as making fencing that makes sense and doesn't take as much maintenance on the side of, of Jim and Leslie. So um, Leslie, one of the things that I hear often when it comes to especially having that higher bottom wire in a low maintenance, AKA wildlife friendly fence is that calves can shoot underneath of it and that that can create an issue. So from a rancher standpoint, um, why don't you answer to that concern that I know a lot of folks have? Yeah, I'm not I'm not an expert on fencing, <laughs> but I know um, when they're older, though, when the calves are older, it's not going to be as much of an issue. I would think that it would be more of an issue when they're with the baby calves. Because uh, for an example, yesterday when we were uh, moving the yearlings, there was a bottom wire that was uh, pretty loose and and we carry uh, fencing pliers on our saddle, but, um, but Jim's like, I'm not that worried about, you know, that, that lowest wire or whatever, but I think when the calves are real little, it would, it could be a problem, but they'll probably make them their way back over also. And then that's another key point is we try not to do it in areas where if a calf gets out, it's at risk. So yeah. um, I know we've had whole programs that have looked at fencing along like transportation corridors, but that then turns into a different setup. Basically, it's trying to find ways that animals can get back off of the highway. Um, so maybe the bottom wire stays low or more wires on a fence to keep stuff in. But if cows aren't in there, maybe we can just leave the gates open. Um, so finding different 
options like that for wildlife has worked on the wildlife program side. And then again, on the, the cow management side, not everything makes sense every place. So making sure that you're the, the ranch is aware of what works where, and then the wildlife community can be on board with that. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent one way or a hundred percent the other way. I'm going to interrupt here. I loved the way our conversation evolved. I knew we wanted to talk about best practices with hunting, but the tangents that we took allowed us to really paint the reality that there are shared interests between the two groups, hunters and private landowners. So maybe not that fighting fish, but hopefully more of a Venn diagram with a healthy overlap of the circles. Well, working with the Rancher Stewardship Alliance is my full-time gig. It is an organization that's big on community and, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, relationships. One of the opportunities the group has allowed me is time away from the office to work with tourism in the state of Montana. It is a whole other ball of wax with congestion in the western part of the state, overwhelming potential in the east, and opportunity that involves the great outdoors, including hunting, fishing, and agricultural tourism. It can be a little bit tricky. Big country, small population, busy people. But I absolutely love the culture that these tourists, be it hunter or not, can bring to an area where folks aren't always able to venture out. And with those visitors come stories and the reality that we can sometimes take what we have for granted. One of the people that has become very good, his entire family has become very good friends with our family. And he's an artist. And so he... To see the ranch through his eyes is pretty neat. I mean, he just, he, he sees things in the appreciation of everything that uh, he notices. It's sometimes, like you said, we do take it for granted. We're, we're working from daylight to dark every day. And sometimes you just don't stop and pay attention to uh, the beauty that we're working in every single day. And, um, yeah, it is, it is nice to, uh, to see that, I guess, through other people's eyes also to kind of give us a reminder of that. I had one last year. So, um, had a pheasants forever coworker out of, I think, Indiana come up as part of a, a tour with some donors and they were going to take them sharp tail hunting. And so I, I found a place to go and we were going to go sharp tail hunting and I was feeling the pressure to make sure some people saw some birds and it, it kind of sucked last year and those two days sucked especially and we weren't finding birds we weren't finding birds and we're just walking and walking and walking running dogs out of steam every day and this guy on the, on the second day of it, he's like this is the best hunting trip i've ever had i've never got to walk this far hunting before like the farthest he had ever walked in his life hunting bird hunting was a quarter mile across the crp field and we we were doing six to ten miles a day out across the wide open space looking for sharp tails. He, uh, he's big and tall. He wore like a size 16 and he destroyed a pair of boots. So he's trying to find a pair of size 16 boots in Glasgow. I think he found one and he was just tickled with it, was into his second pair of boots. Like I think bleeding from his feet, just walking as far as he could walk. And he thought it was the best hunting trip of his life. And I spent two days panicked that it was maybe the worst set of bird hunting I'd ever had. So yeah, just seeing how different people view the experience, I think can be fun too. As we wrap up this podcast, I'm not a hunter myself. I really have no idea what tips to give people outside of just a a little tiny bit of a landowner perspective. So we're going to play a game. 
It's not really a game, but it does sound like a game. I'm titling this segment, So You Think You Can Hunt. So Martin, Leslie, what insight do you have as far as just those initial pointers? We're going to say it over and over again, but maps, I mean, like at a minimum, you can just go on like Google Earth and turn on the satellite imagery and get an idea of what the land cover looks like in the area you want to go. You can download public land maps like Forest Service and BLM. Um, if you use the Avenza app, you can download it and then they work real time like a GPS. Um, there's the all included platforms like Onyx or Go Hunt, um, where you can basically zoom in, you can draw stuff, you can set distances, you can track yourself when you're out hiking. The tracking yourself when you're out hiking, uh, I think especially where we are, where it's mostly flat and it's kind of hard to pick a landmark to walk back to. Uh, is huge for not getting lost. Having a plan and letting someone else know what that plan is, especially if you're going out into big country um, around here by yourself or without a contact back. But I, I think the biggest thing is a map and knowing where you are. Um, around here, like BLM maps from the Bureau of Land Management Office are probably the most legal on public lands, public roads. We kind of mentioned it earlier, but some of the the online platform, some of their some of their data isn't necessarily accurate. Um, they're every year it changes a little bit and they're trying to make it better, but depends how accurate the data set they ever got was. Having that information and knowing how to use it is huge. Um, there you wouldn't believe how many YouTube videos and shows and hunting shows there are that show you how to use those different mapping tools. Um like I had it, I use it quite a bit. I use it for work a lot, honestly. So I'm pretty good with it. Um, I had my uncle with me bow hunting this fall. He was he got it first time using it. Uh, he grew up out there, so he had a, he had an idea where he was, but then he had a map to reinforce it. Uh, he knew about one of the 400 features in that tool. So um, I think knowing what all it can do, being able to download maps for when you don't have service is huge. Uh, anymore, there's almost no excuse to not know where you are with how many different options for GPSs, uh, phone maps, and different things like that there are. And that's key, Martin. You said download it. Um, take screenshots, especially when you're in our country. You're not going to have cell phone service for a lot of it. And so yeah. just really anticipating that you will need to have that um, if you're going to want to have a, a clear indication of where things are. So, Leslie? Maps are important to you as well. Um, you can expand on that. Anything else that you think is important for somebody to know if they are coming to the state to hunt? Well, I'm going to give just some basic advice. Learn the weather. Uh, our weather is quickly changing. So layer. I mean, you wear appropriate clothing and shoes too, because I'm not a professional hunter, but I do know that to have a successful hunt, a lot of times it's going to take a lot of miles. And just um, choose choose the areas that you're capable of um, handling physically and just make sure that you are dressed appropriately. And like Martin said, make, I mean, people need to know kind of where you're going to so that uh, if there is a problem. And uh, we, we had a, a young guy that came out and was doing some kind of surveying and uh, he thought that the white ground was uh, a good place to cross. And I mean, just things like the alkali, um, different things that can keep you out of trouble. Um, talk to the locals, try to just get some knowledge of, of the area do's and don'ts. And in a drought carry uh, 
uh, like, you know, in your vehicle, especially fire extinguisher or shovels, whatever, in case there's um, a fire or whatever, too, you should always be prepared for that. Um, but mainly knowing where you're at and not trespassing into areas that, that you shouldn't be. Thank you to Martin Townsend. Thank you to Leslie Robinson. What a wealth of knowledge those two individuals are. Great to have them in our corner. And thank you for listening to the Ranch Stewards podcast. We'll have another installment next month out the third Thursday. You've been listening to the Ranch Stewards podcast, a project of the Rancher Stewardship Alliance. If you like what you heard, head to ranchstewards.org for added content or follow the Rancher Stewardship Alliance on Facebook and Instagram.